Chapter Three of Among the Tibetans by Isabella L. Bird. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Avai in March two thousand thirteen. Chapter Three, Nubra. In order to visit Lower Nubra and return to Leh, we were obliged to cross the great fords of the Shayok at the most dangerous season of the year. This transit had been the bugbear of the journey ever since news reached us of the destruction of the Sati scow. Mr. Redslob questioned every man we met on the subject. Solemn and noisy conclaves were held upon it round the campfires. It was said that the European woman and her spider-legged horse could never get across, and for days before we reached the stream, the chupas, or government water guides, made nightly reports to the village headmen of the state of the waters, which were steadily rising, the final verdict being that they were only just practicable for strong horses. To delay till the waters fell was impossible. Mr. Redslob had engagements in Leh, and I was already somewhat late for the passage of the lofty passes between Tibet and British India before the winter. So we decided on crossing with every precaution which experience could suggest. At Lakshang, the evening before, the Tibetans made prayers and offerings for a day cloudy enough to keep the water down. But in the morning, from a cloudless sky, a scintillating sun blazed down like a magnesium light, and every glacier and snowfield sent its tribute torrent to the Shayok. In crossing a stretch of white sand, the solar heat was so fierce that our European skins were blistered through our clothing. We halted at Lakshang, at the house of a friendly Semindar, who pressed upon me the loan of a big yarkand horse for the ford a kindness which nearly proved fatal, and then, by shingle-paths through lacerating thickets of the horrid Hippophi Ramnoides, we reached a chot ten on the shingly bank of the river, where the Tibetans renewed their prayers and offerings, and the final orders for the crossing were issued. We had twelve horses, carrying only quarter-loads each, all led, the servants were mounted, water-guides with ten-foot poles sounded the river ahead, one led Mr. Redslob's horse, the rider being bare-legged, in front of mine with a long rope, and two more led mine, while the gopas of three villages and the semindar steadied my horse against the stream. The water-guides only wore girdles, and with elf-locks and pigtails streaming from their heads, and their uncouth yells and wild gesticulations, they looked true river demons. The Shayok presented an expanse of eight branches and a main stream, divided by shallows and shingle-banks, the whole a mile and a half in width. On the brink the chupas made us all drink good draughts of the turbid river-water, to prevent giddiness, they said, and they added that I must not think them rude if they dashed water at my face frequently with the same object. Hassan Khan and Mando, who was livid with fright, wore dark green goggles that they might not see the rapids. In the second branch the water reached the horses' bodies, and my animal tottered and swerved. There were bursts of wild laughter, not merriment but excitement, accompanied by yells as the streams grew fiercer, a loud chorus of Kabadar, Sharbas, caution, well done, was yelled to encourage the horses, and the boom and hiss of the shayok made a wild accompaniment. 
gyalpo for whose legs of steel i longed frolicked as usual making mirthful lunges at his leader when the pair halted hassan khan in the deepest branch shakily said to me i not afraid mem sahib during the hours spent in crossing the eight branches i thought that the risk had been exaggerated and that giddiness was the chief peril but when we halted cold and dripping on the shingle bank of the main stream i changed my mind a deep fierce swirling rapid with a calmer depth below its farther bank and fully a quarter of a mile wide was yet to be crossed the business was serious all the chupas went up and down sounding long before they found a possible passage all loads were raised higher the men roped their soaked clothing on their shoulders water was dashed repeatedly at our faces girths were tightened and then with shouts and yells the whole caravan plunged into deep water strong and almost ice cold half an hour was spent in that devious ford without any apparent progress for in the dizzy swirl the horses simply seemed treading the water backwards louder grew the yells as the torrent raged more hoarsely the chorus of kabadar grew frantic the water was up to the man's armpits and the seat of my saddle my horse tottered and swerved several times the nearing shore presented an abrupt bank underscooped by the stream there was a deeper plunge an encouraging shout and mr redslop's strong horse leapt the bank the gopas encouraged mine he made a desperate effort but fell short and rolled over backwards into the shayok with his rider under him a struggle a moment of suffocation and i was extricated by strong arms to be knocked down again by the rush of the water to be again dragged up and hauled and hoisted up the crumbling bank i escaped with a broken rib and some severe bruises but the horse was drowned mr redslop who had thought that my life could not be saved and the tibetans were so distressed by the accident that i made very light of it and only took one day of rest the following morning some men and animals were carried away and afterwards the ford was impassable for a fortnight such risks are among the amenities of the great trade route from india into central asia the lower nubra valley is wider and narrower than the upper its apricot orchards more luxuriant its wolf-haunted hippophi and tamarisk thickets more dense its villages are always close to ravines the mouths of which are filled with chod tents manis prayer wheels and religious buildings access to them is usually up the stony beds of streams overarched by apricots the camping-grounds are apricot orchards the apricot foliage is rich and the fruit small but delicious the largest fruit tree i saw measured nine feet six inches in girth six feet from the ground strangers are welcome to eat as much of the fruit as they please provided that they return the stones to the proprietor it is true that nubra exports dried apricots and the women were splitting and drying the fruit on every house roof but the special raison d'etre of the tree is the clear white fragrant and highly illuminating oil made from the kernels by the simple process of crushing them between two stones 
in every gonpo temple a silver bowl holding from four to six gallons is replenished annually with this almond-scented oil for the ever-burning light before the shrine of buddha it is used for lamps and very largely in cookery children instead of being washed are rubbed daily with it and on being weaned at the age of four or five are fed for some time or rather crammed with balls of barley meal made into a paste with it at hundar a superbly situated village which we visited twice we were received at the house of gurgen the monk who had accompanied us throughout he is a semindar and the large house in which he made us welcome stands in his own patrimony everything was prepared for us the mud floors were swept cotton quilts were laid down on the balconies blue cornflowers and marigolds cultivated for religious ornament were in all the rooms and the women were in gala dress and loaded with coarse jewellery right hearty was the welcome mr redslop loved and therefore was loved the tibetans to him were not natives but brothers he drew the best out of them their superstitions and beliefs were not to him rubbish but subjects for minute investigation and study his courtesy to all was frank and dignified in his dealings he was scrupulously just he was intensely interested in their interests his tibetan scholarship and knowledge of tibetan sacred literature gave him almost the standing of an abbot among them and his medical skill and knowledge joyfully used for their benefit on former occasions had won their regard so at hundar as everywhere else the elders came out to meet us and cut the apricot branches away on our road and the silver horns of the gonpo above brayed a dissonant welcome along the indus valley the servants of englishmen beat the tibetans in the shayok and nubra valleys the yarkand traders beat and cheat them and the women are shy with strangers but at hunda they were frank and friendly with me saying as many others had said we will trust any one who comes with the missionary gurgen's home was typical of the dwellings of the richer cultivators and landholders it was a large rambling three-storied house the lower part of stone the upper of huge sun-dried bricks it was adorned with projecting windows and brown wooden balconies fuel the dried excreta of animals is too scarce to be used for any but cooking purposes and on these balconies in the severe cold of winter the people sit to imbibe the warm sunshine the rooms were large sealed with peeled poplar rods and floored with split white pebbles set in clay there was a temple on the roof and in it on a platform were life-size images of buddha seated in eternal calm with his downcast eyes and mild hindu face the thousand-armed chandra ziggs the great mercy jampal yangs the wisdom and chakna dorye the justice in front on a table or altar were seven small lamps burning apricot oil and twenty small brass cups containing minute offerings of rice and other things changed daily there were prayer wheels cymbals horns and drums and a prayer cylinder six feet high which it took the strength of two men to turn on a shelf immediately below the idols were the brazen sceptre bell and thunderbolt 
a brass lotus blossom and the spouted brass flagon decorated with peacock's feathers which is used at baptisms and for pouring holy water upon the hands at festivals in houses in which there is not a roof temple the best room is set apart for religious use and for these divinities which are always surrounded with musical instruments and symbols of power and receive worship and offerings daily tibetan buddhism being a religion of the family and household in his family temple gurgan offered gifts and thanks for the deliverances of the journey he had been assisting mr redslob for two years in the translation of the new testament and had wept over the love and sufferings of our lord jesus christ he had even desired that his son should receive baptism and be brought up as a christian but for himself he could not break with custom and his ancestral creed in the usual living-room of the family a platform raised only a few inches ran partly round the wall in the middle of the floor there was a clay fireplace with a prayer wheel and some clay and brass cooking pots upon it a few shelves fire bars for roasting barley a wooden churn and some spinning arrangements were the furniture a number of small dark rooms used for sleeping and storage opened from this and above were the balconies and reception rooms wooden posts supported the roofs and these were wreathed with lucerne the first fruits of the field narrow steep staircases in all tibetan houses lead to the family rooms in winter the people live below alongside of the animals and fodder in summer they sleep in loosely built booths of poplar branches on the roof gurgan's roof was covered like others at the time to the depth of two feet with hay that is grass and lucerne which are wound into long ropes experience having taught the tibetans that their scarce fodder is best prevented thus from breakage and waste i bought hay by the yard for gyalpo our food in this hospitable house was simple apricots fresh or dried and stewed with honey tso's milk curds and cheese sour cream peas beans balls of barley dough barley porridge and broth of abominable things chang a dirty-looking beer made from barley was offered with each meal and tea frequently but i took my own on the sly i have mentioned a churn as part of the plenishings of the living-room in tibet the churn is used for making tea i give the recipe for six persons Boil a teacupful of tea in three pints of water for ten minutes with a heaped dessert spoonful of soda. Put the infusion into the churn with one pound of butter and a small tablespoonful of salt. Churn until as thick as cream. Tea made after this fashion holds the second place to Chang in Tibetan affections. The butter, according to our thinking, is always rancid the mode of making it is uncleanly and it always has a rank flavour from the goatskin in which it was kept its value is enhanced by age i saw skins of it forty fifty and even sixty years old which were highly prized and would only be opened at some special family festival or funeral during the three days of our visits to hundar both men and women wore their festival dresses and apparently abandoned most of their ordinary occupations in our honour 
the men were very anxious that i should be amused and made many grotesque suggestions on the subject why is the european woman always writing or sewing they asked is she very poor or has she made a vow visits to some of the neighboring monasteries were eventually proposed and turned out most interesting the monastery of deskiet to which we made a three days expedition is from its size and picturesque situation the most imposing in nubra built on a majestic spur of rock rising on one side two thousand feet perpendicularly from a torrent the spur itself having an altitude of eleven thousand feet with red peaks snow-capped rising to a height of over twenty thousand feet behind the vast irregular pile of red white and yellow temples towers storehouses cloisters galleries and balconies rising for three hundred feet one above another hanging over chasms built out on wooden buttresses and surmounted with flags tridents and yak's tails a central tower or keep dominating the whole it is perhaps the most picturesque object i have ever seen well worth the crossing of the shayok fords my painfully accident and much besides it looks inaccessible but in fact can be attained by rude zigzags of a thousand steps of rock some naturally others roughly hewn getting worse and worse as they rise higher till the later zigzags suggest the difficulties of the ascent of the great pyramid the day was fearfully hot ninety-nine degrees in the shade and the naked shining surfaces of purple rock with a metallic lustre radiated heat my gallant grey took me up half-way a great feat and the tibetans cheered and shouted Sharbaz! well done as he pluckily leapt up the great slippery rock ledges after i dismounted any number of willing hands hauled and helped me up the remaining horrible ascent the rugged rudeness of which is quite indescribable the inner entrance is a gateway decorated with a yak's head and many buddhist emblems high above on a rude gallery fifty monks were gathered with their musical instruments as soon as the kanpo or abbot pant sog sogman the most perfect merit received us at the gate the monkish orchestra broke forth in a tornado of sound of a most tremendous and thrilling quality which was all but overwhelming as the mountain echoes took up and prolonged the sound of fearful blasts on six-foot silver horns the bellowing thunder of six-foot drums the clash of cymbals and the dissonance of a number of monster gongs it was not music but it was sublime the blasts on the horns are to welcome a great personage and such to the monks who despised his teaching was the devout and learned german missionary mr redslob explained that i had seen much of buddhism in ceylon and japan and wished to see their temples so with our train of gopas zemindar peasants and muleteers we mounted to a corridor full of lamas in ragged red dresses yellow girdles and yellow caps where we were presented with plates of apricots and the doors of the lowest of the seven temples heavily grated backwards the first view and indeed the whole view of this temple of wrath or justice was suggestive of a frightful inferno with its rows of demon gods hideous beyond western conception engaged in torturing writhing and bleeding specimens of humanity 
demon masks of ancient lacquer hung from the pillars naked swords gleamed in motionless hands and in a deep recess whose darkness was rendered visible by one lamp was that indescribable horror the executioner of the lord of hell his many brandished arms holding instruments of torture and before him the bell the thunderbolt and sceptre the holy water and the baptismal flagon our joss-sticks fumed on the still air monks waved censers and blasts of dissonant music woke the semi-subterranean echoes in this temple of justice the younger lamas spent some hours daily in the supposed contemplation of the torments reserved for the unholy in the highest temple that of peace the summer sunshine fell on shakya tuba and the buddhist triad seated in endless serenity the walls were covered with frescoes of great lamas and a series of alcoves each with an image representing an incarnation of buddha ran round the temple in a chapel full of monstrous images and piles of medallions made of the ashes of holy men the sub-abbot was discoursing to the acolytes on the religious classics in the chapel of meditations among lighted incense sticks monks seated before images were telling their beads with the object of working themselves into a state of ecstatic contemplation somewhat resembling a certain hypnotic trance for there are undoubtedly devout lamas though the majority are idle and unholy it must be understood that all tibetan literature is sacred though some of the volumes of exquisite calligraphy on parchment which for our benefit were divested of their silken and brocaded wrappings contain nothing better than fairy tales and stories of doubtful morality which are recited by the lamas to the accompaniment of incessant cups of chang as a religious duty when they visit their flocks in the winter the deskid gonpo contains one hundred fifty lamas all of whom have been educated at lhasa a younger son in every household becomes a monk and occasionally enters upon his vocation as an acolyte pupil as soon as weaned at the age of thirteen these acolytes are sent to study at lhasa for five or seven years their departure being made the occasion of a great village feast with several days of religious observances the close connection with lhasa especially in the case of the yellow lamas gives nubra buddhism a singular interest all the larger gonpos have their prototype in lhasa all ceremonial has originated in lhasa every instrument of worship has been consecrated in lhasa and every lama is educated in the learning only to be obtained at lhasa buddhism is indeed the most salient feature of nubra there are gonpos everywhere the roads are lined by miles of chod tens manis and prayer mills and flags inscribed with sacred words in sanskrit flutter from every roof there are processions of red and yellow lamas every act in trade agriculture and social life needs the sanction of sacerdotalism whatever exists of wealth is in the gompos which also have a monopoly of learning and eleven thousand monks closely linked with the laity yet ruling all affairs of life and death and beyond death are all connected by education tradition and authority with lhasa 
we remained long on the blazing roof of the highest tower of the gonpo while good mr redslob disputed with the abbot concerning the things pertaining to the kingdom of god the monks standing round laughed sneeringly they had shown a little interest mr redslob said on his earlier visits the abbot accepted a copy of the gospel of st john st matthew he observed is very laughable reading blasts of wild music and the braying of colossal horns honoured our departure and our difficult descent to the apricot groves of deskit on our return to hundar the grain was ripe on gurgen's fields the first ripe ears were cut off offered to the family divinity and were then bound to the pillars of the house in the comparatively fertile nubra valley the wheat and barley are cut not rooted up while they cut the grain the men chant may it increase we will give to the poor we will give to the lamas with every stroke they believe that it can be made to multiply both under the sickle and in the threshing and perform many religious rites for its increase while it is in sheaves after eight days the corn is trodden out by oxen on a threshing floor renewed every year after winnowing with wooden forks they make the grain into a pyramid insert a sacred symbol and pile upon it the threshing instruments and sacks erecting an axe on the apex with its blade turned to the west as that is the quarter from which demons are supposed to come in the afternoon they feast round it always giving a portion to the axe saying it is yours it belongs not to me at dusk they pour it into the sacks again chanting may it increase but these are not removed to the granary until late at night at an hour when the hands of the demons are too much benumbed by the nightly frost to diminish the store at the beginning of every one of these operations the presence of lamas is essential to announce the auspicious moment and conduct religious ceremonies they receive fees and are regaled with abundant chung and the fat of the land in hundar as elsewhere we were made very welcome in all the houses i have described the dwelling of gurgan the poorer peasants occupy similar houses but roughly built and only two-storied and the floors are merely clay in them also the very numerous lower rooms are used for cattle and fodder only while the upper part consists of an inner or winter room an outer or supper room a veranda room and a family temple among their rude plenishings are large stone corn chests like sarcophagi stone bowls from baltistan cauldrons cooking pots a tripod wooden bowls spoons and dishes earthen pots and yaks and sheep's pack saddles the garments of the household are kept in long wooden boxes family life presents some curious features in the disposal in marriage of a girl her eldest brother has more say than the parents the eldest son brings home the bride to his father's house but at a given age the old people are shelved that is they retire to a small house which may be termed a jointure house and the eldest son assumes the patrimony and rule of affairs i have not met with a similar custom anywhere in the east it is difficult to speak of tibetan life with all its affection and jollity as family life for buddhism which enjoins monastic life and usually celibacy along with it 
on eleven thousand out of a total population of a hundred and twenty thousand farther restrains the increase of population within the limits of sustenance by inculcating and rigidly upholding the system of polyandry permitting marriage only to the eldest son the heir of the land while the bride accepts all his brothers as inferior or subordinate husbands thus attaching the whole family to the soil and family roof-tree the children being regarded legally as the property of the eldest son who is addressed by them as big father his brothers receiving the title of little father the resolute determination on economic as well as religious grounds not to abandon this ancient custom is the most formidable obstacle in the way of the reception of christianity by the tibetans the women cling to it they say we have three or four men to help us instead of one and sneer at the dullness and monotony of european monogamous life a woman said to me if i had only one husband and he died i should be a widow if i have two or three i am never a widow the word widow is with them a term of reproach and is applied abusively to animals and men children are brought up to be very obedient to fathers and mother and to take great care of little ones and cattle parental affection is strong husbands and wives beat each other but separation usually follows a violent outbreak of this kind it is the custom for the men and women of a village to assemble when a bride enters the house of her husbands each of them presenting her with three rupees the tibetan wife far from spending these gifts on personal adornment looks ahead contemplating possible contingencies and immediately hires a field the produce of which is her own and which accumulates year after year in a separate granary so that she may not be portionless in case she leaves her husband it was impossible not to become attached to the nubra people we lived so completely among them and met with such unbounded goodwill feasts were given in our honour every gonpo was open to us monkish blasts on colossal horns brayed out welcomes and while nothing could exceed the helpfulness and alacrity of kindness shown by all there was not a thought or suggestion of bakshish the men of the villages always sat by our campfires at night friendly and jolly but never obtrusive telling stories discussing local news and the oppressions exercised by the kashmiri officials the designs of russia the advance of the central asian railway and what they consider as the weakness of the indian government in not annexing the provinces on the northern frontier many of their ideas and feelings are akin to ours and a mutual understanding is not only possible but inevitable footnote mr redslop said that when on different occasions he was smitten by heavy sorrows he felt no difference between the tibetan feeling and expression of sympathy and that of europeans a stronger testimony to the effect produced by his twenty-five years of loving service could scarcely be given than our welcome in nubra during the dangerous illness which followed anxious faces thronged his humble doorway as early as break of day and the stream of friendly inquiries never ceased till sunset and when he died the people of ladakh and nubra wept and made a great mourning for him as for their truest friend End footnote. 
Industry in Nubra is the condition of existence, and both sexes work hard enough to give great zest to the holidays on religious festival days. Whether in the house or journeying, the men are never seen without the dye-staff. They weave also and make the clothes of the women and children. The people are all cultivators and make money also by undertaking the transit of the goods of the Yarkand traders over the lofty passes. The men plough with the tso, or hybrid yak, and the women break the clods and share in all other agricultural operations. The soil, destitute of manure, which is dried and hoarded for fuel, rarely produces more than tenfold. The three acres and a cow is with them four acres of alluvial soil to a family on an average, which runs for yaks and sheep on the mountains. The farms, planted with apricots and other fruit trees, a prolific loose-grained barley, wheat, peas and lucerne, are oases in the surrounding deserts. The people export apricot oil, dried apricots, sheep's wool, heavy undyed woolens, a coarse cloth made from yak's hair, and pajam, the underfleece of the shawl goat. They complained, and I think with good reason, of the merciless exactions of the Kashmiri officials, but there were no evidences of severe poverty, and not one beggar was seen. It was not an easy matter to get back to Leh. The rise of the Shayok made it impossible to reach and return by the Digar Pass, and the alternative route over the Karzong Glacier continued for some time impracticable, that is, it was perfectly smooth ice. At length the news came that a fall of snow had roughened its surface. A number of men worked for two days at scaffolding a path, and with great difficulty, and the loss of one yak from a falling rock, a fruitful source of fatalities in Tibet, we reached Kalsar, where with great regret we parted with Tsering Dondrup, life's purpose fulfilled, the Gopa of Sati, whose friendship had been a real pleasure, and to whose courage and promptitude, in Mr. Redslob's opinion, I owed my rescue from drowning. Two days of very severe marching and long and steep ascents brought us to the wretched hamlet of Kaosong Larsa, in a snowstorm, at an altitude higher than the summit of Mont Blanc. The servants were all ill of pass poison and crept into a cave along with a number of big Tibetan mastiffs, where they enjoyed the comfort of semi-suffocation till the next morning. Mr. Redslob and I, with some willing Tibetan helpers, pitching our own tents. The wind was strong and keen, and with the mercury down at 15 degrees Fahrenheit, it was impossible to do anything but to go to bed in the early afternoon and stay there till the next day. Mr. Redslob took a severe chill, which produced an alarming attack of pleurisy, from the effects of which he never fully recovered. We started on a grim snowy morning, with six yaks carrying our baggage or ridden by ourselves, four led horses and a number of Tibetans, several more having been sent on in advance to cut steps in the glacier and roughen them with gravel. Within certain limits the ground grows greener as one ascends, and we passed upwards among primulas, asters, a large blue myosotis, gentians, potentillas, and great sheets of edelweiss. 
at the glacier foot we skirted a deep green lake on snow with a glorious view of the Karzong glacier and the pass a nearly perpendicular wall of rock bearing up a steep glacier and a snowfield of great width and depth above which tower pinnacles of naked rock it presented to all appearance an impassable barrier rising two thousand five hundred feet above the lake grand and awful in the dazzling whiteness of the new-fallen snow thanks to the ice steps our yaks took us over in four hours without a false step and from the summit a sharp ridge seventeen thousand five hundred feet in altitude we looked our last on grimness blackness and snow and southward for many a weary mile to the indus valley lying in sunshine and summer fully two dozen carcasses of horses newly dead lay in cavities of the glacier our animals were ill of pass poison and nearly blind and i was obliged to ride my yak into leh a severe march of thirteen hours down miles of crumbling zigzags and then among villages of irrigated terraces till the grand view of the gyalpo's palace with its air-hung gonpo and clustering chod tents and of the desert city itself burst suddenly upon us and our benumbed and stiffened limbs thawed in the hot sunshine i pitched my tent in a popular grove for a fortnight near the moravian compounds and close to the traveller's bungalow in which is a british postal agency with a tibetan postmaster who speaks english a christian much trusted and respected named jolden in whose intelligence kindness and friendship i found both interest and pleasure End of chapter three